And it was inspired by a pastor and author called Pete Scazzaro, who's written books out of his own journey with emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, the Doing Life Well series from September last year is available to listen to on the Junction 10 podcast on iTunes. Uh, so if you're new to us, or if you missed it, or if you've just plain forgotten about it, I suggest you head over to iTunes and download it. Um, but today we're doing a recap about what we learned last year, because doing life well is far too important an area just to do one study and then move on. And our heart is that doing life well, living a full, free gospel life, becomes embedded in our Junction 10 culture. Now, lots of you bought Pete's book and the daily devotional that went along with the series. And at the time, many of you said that you'd been impacted by some of the teaching and ideas. But realistically, I wonder how much of it has stuck. When was the last time any of us had a look at one of those books? Now, for myself, I've been on this inner journey for quite a number of years now. And I totally believe it's the way that God draws us deeper into himself. I'm convinced it's one of the best ways for me to grow and mature spiritually. And yet I struggle. I forget. I move on too quickly. And I sometimes just get too distracted by other things. So today's a bit of a reminder for us all. Is that okay? Yeah. And perhaps we might be inspired to go and read the book again or listen to the Doing Life Well podcast and hopefully introduce some of the spiritual disciplines and those ideas back into our daily lives to help us grow. And this is the key premise for the whole inner journey. It's that you can't be spiritually mature and remain emotionally immature. It's like two sides of the same coin. You need both to be whole. You see, when sin entered the world, it ruptured the friendship that we once had with God with other people, and with ourselves. Our emotional, spiritual, social, and physical relationships were fractured. And this is why the gospel is good news. The gospel is a holistic gospel. It's a place where all those torn dimensions of our lives get repaired. Our conversion to Christianity isn't just about getting to heaven when we die. Christ's salvation is about being reconciled, repaired, and restored, becoming whole in every aspect of our life. And the Apostle Paul, in his letters in the Bible, talks about the life of discipleship being like an athlete, training to run a race. And the image is one of the very hard preparatory work that we have to do. Now, we don't have to do the work to be saved, because that's done by faith. It's an act of grace. The work of Christ on the cross fully accomplished that for us. But the Bible says we're to work out that salvation with fear and trembling as we grow towards greater maturity. So today, we're going to look at the master. We're going to take a passage of scripture and walk through a day in the life of Jesus. But rather than focus on his teaching, rather than listen to what he said, instead, we're going to look at what he did. We'll observe how Jesus lived life well. 
We're going to walk with him. We're going to watch how he does things. And we're going to learn his unforced rhythms of grace. Thanks, team. That we want to see you. Help us be focused. Help us to take things that distract us and take our eyes in another direction. Help them be diminished this morning and help us focus on you and what you did and how that can help us live life well. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. As Will said, we're doing a day with Jesus. Now, those of you who are a bit of biblical scholars will know that in the book of Mark, the way it is written often seems like things happen straight after each other. And there's a lot of discussion. Was it a day or was it lots of different individual bits? And probably scholars say it was individual bits. But what we're doing is putting it together and saying, well, let's just see what happened when Jesus was on this earth and the passages and how they read as they come together. So it may not be just one day, but that still doesn't take away from us seeing what Jesus did. And hopefully you'll have one of these, which is the Bible passages that we're looking at. And we've given you this because some of the Bible passages we won't be telling in the ordinary way. So you can look at this passage and help you, help you understand what the Bible actually said went on. But also to take home with you. Not just go, oh, they've done that, that was lovely. But to see these passages and then discover for yourself what Jesus did and how that impacts on your life day to day. So we're going to start with the story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It seemed like an ordinary Sabbath. We knew what we would do. Every week was the same. We had the same rituals, the same things that we did in order to prepare ourselves. And then the same journey as we went to the synagogue. But as we went, we heard something. Heard something that meant it may not be an ordinary Sabbath after all. There were rumours, whispers that Jesus was coming to town. And he would be at the synagogue that day. As we carried on our journey, more people than usual joined us. Some were excited some were chatting, 19 to the dozen, about who Jesus was. Others just joined because they could see something was going to happen. Others didn't look happy that Jesus was coming to town. They had a grim determination on their face, as if they were looking for trouble. When we got there, we realised it definitely wasn't an ordinary Sabbath. Jesus was being watched. Every eye was on him. Not those leading the procession and leading the rituals. Everyone was to see what he was doing. He saw a man and asked him to stand up. We knew straight away who this was. Because his hand never worked. It was gnarled. And this person couldn't work 
because of this disability. He asked him to stand. Again, some started whispering, maybe he's going to heal. They'd heard that this man could do amazing things. We hadn't seen this before. Were the rumours true? But Jesus addressed everybody else. Addressed about whether the Sabbath was the time. Whether the Sabbath was the time to do work or not. You could see outrage on some face, eager excitement on the others. But then, in the midst of all this confusion, Jesus asked the man to stretch out his hand. I couldn't see totally whether it was immediate or whether it flexed into shape quickly. But we knew this man was healed. Gasps, cries of excitement, people murmuring to each other, it really is true. But also people muttering threats, saying this man needs to be stopped. All we knew that day was it was not an ordinary Sabbath. Thanks, Phil. So, as has already been explained, we're spending this morning walking through a day in the life of Jesus. And we begin with Jesus being at the synagogue, healing a man with a shriveled hand. Now, Perhaps, as you were listening to the story, many of you, like me initially, might have thought that I was going to talk about Sabbath now. But actually, when we look a little bit deeper at this passage, we begin to see that this is all about identity. Jesus begins his day carrying out his father's business, standing in his true identity as the Son of God. His ministry flows from him being his true self, his authentic self, which is actually where the journey of emotionally healthy spirituality begins, becoming your authentic self. I wonder how many of you were actually challenged by this when we were following our series on doing life well. I wonder how many of us are actually living and working out of the false self rather than living out of your true God-given identity. In AD 400, Augustine prayed, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. So many of us live our lives without really knowing who we are. And it's so easy to unconsciously live somebody else's life or their expectations. But ultimately, that destroys our relationship with God. Throughout his time on earth, Jesus lived faithfully to his true self and he walked in his true identity. And he understood what it was like for people to have certain expectations of him. But because he was so secure in his father's love, it meant that he was able to withstand enormous pressure to live up to those expectations. And that meant he disappointed a lot of people. 
And in this passage, we see him disappointing the religious leaders. They don't want his disruption to their rules. They don't want his new kingdom theology, which allows healing on the Sabbath. Pete Scazzaro points out, in order to be emotionally healthy, or as we might say, in order to do life well, we need to be aware of the temptation of the false self. And right now, in 2019, we are all under enormous pressure not to live our lives as our true self. And so we get, tem- we get trapped by the temptations to believe that, one, I am what I do, how I perform. Two, I am what I have, all these possessions. And three, I am what other people think about me. How popular am I? And I don't remove myself from any of this because I find it just as hard to fight these temptations as many of you do. And I really want to be real with you this morning and be my true self. I don't want to just give you information, but I want to be authentic. I think my best example of this is um, when you become a mother, it really tests your character and who you really are. And for a long time after having the girls, I actually used to really struggle in polite conversation when people would say, oh, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm a full-time mom. Because I couldn't say, well, I'm a head of drama at a secondary school. Instead, I was a full-time mother. And at that point, my life consisted of going to moms and toddlers and dirty nappies, and success was really just making it through to bath time. And I used to feel embarrassed when people asked me that question. And I actually enjoyed it when I went back part-time and I could say, I'm a teacher again. But I was listening to the wrong voice. And I'd love to say that it was only that, but all of these temptations surround us all the time. It's really easy, isn't it, to want the big house or to have the nice car or to have the five-star holidays. And we really want people to like us and we want to be complimented and we might search for approval. We might check how many likes have we got on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. But we're listening to the wrong voices and we have to make a choice. And for many of us, it's a daily choice. I love this. Pete Scazzaro calls it living and swimming in the river of God's deep love for us. Choosing to live in God's love and acceptance is actually the only way for loving and accepting our true selves. You see, God has shaped and crafted each one of us and we all have unique thoughts and dreams and personalities and gifts and talents and desires and we are all deeply loved. We are treasured. And I sensed as I was writing this that some of you have heard that many, many times, but you need to hear it again this morning, and you need to really hear it. 
You are loved. Your true self is treasured. So don't hide away under other people's expectations. Live in the freedom, like Jesus, of being your true self. When we live in the deep river of our Heavenly Father's love, the voice of, you're not good enough, is drowned out by the power of his love. Jesus knew this, and he lived his whole life out of this, and all of his ministry flowed from this. So as we begin our life in the day of Jesus, let's begin well. Like I said earlier, it's often a daily choice, but let's learn to live as our true selves, in our God-given identity as the sons and daughters God created us to be. Let's move on to the next part of our story. Please stand. We're going to imagine what it was like to journey to see Jesus. If you want to close your hands, uh, close your eyes, you can do that. There are some images on the screen that may help you as well. Whatever helps you focus. Imagine you've been walking for quite a long time. You're not sure exactly how long. But you knew you had to make this journey to see Jesus. Crowds were gathering. The path was getting harder to stay on as more and more people were there. You can hear accents that you don't quite understand. Places from further afield. Because Jesus' name is becoming more and more recognized and people want to see him. You want to see him. Maybe it is because you want to see a miracle. Maybe it is because you want to hear his words. Maybe you're curious or maybe you think he must be stopped at all costs. Your legs are tired. Your feet are dusty. You're not sure when you'll next eat and when you'll drink because all you know is you need to see Jesus. Soon people are saying he is near. And you all gather on this place by the lake. Some of you will stay back right on the fringes, right on the outskirts, just enough to find out what's going on, but not to push yourself to the front. Others of you, you want to be right there. You don't want to miss a thing. You're right in front. You push past people, old and young. Others of you just stay where you are, not wanting to cause an issue. You just want to be there. You see there's a small boat ready. People keep pushing in. Times he goes out in the boat to teach. Other times he's on the land. But you also see people screaming and shouting. Some of you, some of you recognize them. People you've tried to keep away from. People you've tried to ignore because they're not quite there. Maybe they say things or do things that make you feel uncomfortable. But they are in this crowd. 
But they fall before Jesus and they cry out, You are the Son of God. He tells them not to tell others about him. They say, you are the Son of God. But who do you say he is? Please take your seats. Thank you. So... We come to our next part, the day of the life of Jesus, which actually begins with the words, Jesus withdrew. And these words immediately stood out to me as I was reading and I was meditating on the passage. Jesus begins his day living as his true self and he moves on now showing us that he actually fully understood the gift of limits. Now, some of you might remember Phil speaking on limits last year. Hopefully, some of you will have read about this and you will have meditated on it. How are you doing? Are you still operating within the boundaries of your limits or have you forgotten? And have you got sucked back into feeling that there's too little time, too much to do, feeling pressured and restless on your interior? It's not some, something that anybody finds easy, is it? In fact, I actually think there's a part of us that really hates limits and we fight to accept this as a gift from God. Because if you think about it, from a young age, our children are actually taught that you can do anything you set your mind to. The world is your horizon. Go for it. Do not be limited by anyone or anything. Yet, as, we, as I mentioned earlier, we've all been uniquely created by the living God. We all have gifts and talents which are unique to us. And that actually says the opposite. We can't do everything. We do have limitations. We are not superhuman. Pete Scazzaro says, emotionally healthy people understand the limits that God has given them. They joyfully receive the one, two, seven, or ten talents God has so graciously distributed. And as a result, they're not frenzied and covetous. They're not trying to live a life that God never intended. And they are marked by emotional contentment and joy. Jesus lived his life on earth within the boundaries of limits. Now, Jesus is the Son of God, and he can do anything, but on earth, he was in human form. And so we see him joyfully embracing the gift of limits. When we look at the New Testament, we see Jesus didn't do any miracles for the first 30 years of his life. He was a faithful son, he worked as a carpenter, he participated in community life, and he went to the synagogue like everyone else. In our passage, we see Jesus withdrawing from the crowd, taking his disciples to a remote place, yet the crowd follow him. And so he asks his disciples to get a small boat for him to stop the crowds from crowding in. Now in the passage, Jesus heals many people, but when we look at the New Testament as a whole, we see that Jesus doesn't heal every sick and demon-possessed person. He refuses to let some people follow him. 
he chooses just 12 disciples, which actually means he would have disappointed others. He doesn't run after the crowds when they later turn away from him. Jesus didn't go and meet the needs of everyone in Europe and Africa and Asia and the Americas. Yet, towards the end of his life, in John 17, verse 4, he says, he has finished the work his father has given him. He has accomplished what the father has asked of him while living within his human limitations. John the Baptist is another great model of somebody who lives within their limits. Before Jesus begins his ministry, John's got a great number of followers, but they switch allegiance when they realize who Jesus is. And some of John's followers are upset by this, but John replies in John 3:27, a person can receive only what is given from heaven. In other words, John's saying, I accept my limits. I accept my humanity. I'm not the center of the universe. I am not God. So if Jesus is our model, why do we find this so hard? Why are we constantly living on burnout, thinking that we can do more than we can? Why do we run around frantically thinking everything's going to fall apart and the world's going to stop if we stop? Why are we not accepting our God-given limits? And I struggle with this as much as the rest of you, and especially when it comes to saying no. But if I want to follow Jesus, and if I want to follow his model, then I've got to learn to live within my limits. I remember when I first read some years ago, Emotionally Healthy Church, and I felt quite shocked when I saw that being married and having children was listed as limits. And I think that's because it kind of sounds terrible to think of your husband and children as limiting. <laughs> but actually, when I really thought about it, I felt quite liberated by this. Because God's given me these amazing gifts. And each one of them needs my time and my investment. And all of a sudden, I found it a lot easier to say no to things. And I am a classic people pleaser. But all of a sudden, I could say no without guilt because I knew I needed to be at home that night or I'd promise that time to my husband. Understanding and being really clear on our limits is really important. And this will change with the seasons of your life. Take a moment to think about it. What are my limits? Look at your current life situation. Think about your emotional, your physical, your intellectual capabilities. And have a real conversation with God. And you might well find it suddenly releases you to use your gifting and to serve the church in a new way. We're going to leave this section with a few simple questions to reflect upon and for us to pray over as the worship team gently minister to us. The questions are going to come up on the screen. And can I just encourage you, just right now, have a few moments talking to your heavenly dad. And then as we move in our time of worship, then worship God for who he is. Thank him 
that he can do everything and he has no limits. That you're my friend and you're beautiful and that I'm longing for you. That That is many of our thoughts and many of our desires. But when we were looking at some of these passages, there were people in those crowds who were thinking anything but that about Jesus. They were eyeing him with suspicion. They were eyeing him with disbelief. They were eyeing him with cynicism. And in this group, I'm not saying there's going to be people with such negative emotions, but maybe you're indifferent. Maybe circumstances have clouded your view of Jesus. Maybe you're seeking, but you're still thinking, well, I'm not sure. There could be many other answers to the meaning of life. Well, if you're one of those people, I just want to challenge you to go back to our prayer earlier about opening the eyes of our heart. Just pray that in your mind over and over. Jesus, if you're there, open the eyes of my heart. Reveal more about yourself to me. And our prayer, if you're feeling that, is that you would recognize that Jesus is real and he can be your friend He can be your brother and he can be your king. Thank you. We're now going to continue our reading, looking at Mark 3, 13 to 18. Jesus appoints the twelve. He climbed a mountain and invited those he wanted with him. They climbed together. He settled on 12 and designated them apostles. The plan was that they would be with him and he would send them out to proclaim the word and give them authority to banish demons. These are the twelve. Simon. Jesus later named him Peter, meaning rock. James, son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. Jesus named the Zebedee brothers Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Altheus. Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus came home, and as usual, a crowd gathered. So many making demands on him that there wasn't even time to eat. His friends heard what was going on and went to rescue him by force if necessary. They suspected he was getting carried away with himself. The religious scholars from Jerusalem came down spreading rumours that he was working black magic, using devil tricks to impress them with spiritual power. Jesus confronted their slander with a story. Does it make sense to use a devil to catch a devil? To use Satan to get rid of Satan? 
A constantly squabbling family disintegrates. If Satan were fighting Satan, there soon wouldn't be any Satan left. Do you think it's possible in broad daylight to enter the house of an awake, able-bodied man and walk off with his possessions unless you tie him up first? Tie him up, though, and you can clean him out. Listen to this carefully. I'm warning you. There's nothing or said that can't be forgiven. But if you persist in your slanders against God's Holy Spirit, you're repudiating the very one who forgives, soaring off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own perversity all connection with the one who forgives. He gave this warning because they were accusing him of being in league with evil. Just then his mother and brother showed up. Standing outside, they relayed a message that they wanted a word with him. He was surrounded by the crowd when he was given that message. Your brothers and mothers and sister are outside looking for you. Jesus responded, Who do you think are my mother and brothers? Looking around, taking in everyone seated around him, he said, Right here. Right in front of you, my mother and my brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys God's will is my brother, my sister and my mother. Thank you. So, how are you doing? Are you staying with us? We're halfway now through our day in the life of Jesus. As an aside, can I just say this piece of scripture is jam-packed full of inspiration for our Christian journeys. It is a living manual for our daily lives, but just for this morning, we're just drawing out particular ideas for how we can follow Jesus' example to do life well, to be emotionally healthy. So it might seem that we're missing out lots of important moments, but what we're trying to do is just zoom on in on these principles. So right now, we're just going to zoom in on the end of the passage to verse 33, where Jesus says, Who are my mother and brothers? This is the moment where we see Jesus showing us that part of choosing to walk the Christian journey, part of accepting Christ as your Lord and Saviour, means that you have a new family. However, in accepting this new family and in order to move forward and to grow, we do actually need to look back in order to move forward and we need to break the power of the past. Now, each one of us in this room was born at a particular time, in a particular family, at a particular moment of history. And none of that was an accident. This was all part of God's plan for each one of us. And when we embrace God's choice for us, that grants us certain opportunities and gifts as well as emotional baggage. Pete Scazzaro reminds us that true spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the present, but it does require us to look back in order to go forward. 
We need to break free from destructive, sinful patterns in our past to live the life that God intends. Now, lots of you might say, well, actually, I'm quite happy. Why do I need to look back? Why do I need to rake up the past? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that if we don't, we'll never fully embrace our new family and community which we've been adopted into. The same old unhealthy patterns and cycles quickly return. We can find ourselves stuck and unable to grow and mature in our Christian walk. The philosopher George Santana says it well. He says, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. This is something that takes time for you to really prayerfully contemplate and meditate on. And it certainly takes far more time than we've got this morning. Some examples could be perhaps your family uh, is or was defined by their education, their profession, their wealth, their poverty, their failure. Perhaps growing up, there were certain underlying messages that in order to be loved, you needed to have certain behaviours. We're all so different, and we've all been brought up so incredibly differently that this will look very different for each of us. But when we start to look beneath the surface, most of us will probably find, in reality, we're not doing much different from what our families did. So as you begin to journey with this, can I really encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to journey with you? Because he will reveal to you what you need to see. And remember, his other name is the Comforter. So he'll walk beside you and he will comfort you and hold you as you go. Some, for some of you, there might be a need to process this with a counsellor or a safe person. And if you need advice about this, then please come and ask me or you could come and talk to Rachel and we can help you with that. When we decide to choose Christ and follow Jesus, the Bible tells us we are adopted into the family of God. We are spiritually reborn into the family of God. And the church is now your first family. So take a good look around you. Go on, have a good look around. Because if you have chosen to be a Jesus follower, then this morning you are with your family your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And it is in this family, the local church, that we are reparented into doing life Christ's way. So just as Jesus says in verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother, so it is for us. Whoever is doing God's will, whoever has chosen the Jesus way, is our brother and our sister and our mother. Now hear me, the scripture is very clear about honouring our parents. And this would have been culturally really important to Jesus. So it doesn't mean we go and run away and turn our backs on our biological family. Because if you remember, even on the cross, Jesus honoured his mother and he asked John to care for her. So we must still honour our family into which we were born, but the church is now our first family. 
And part of our discipleship, part of our growth, is putting off the old sinful patterns and habits of our family of origin, taking off the old yoke and putting on Jesus's new yoke. I love my family and I am so grateful to them uh, for lots of things that they've taught me and that they've passed on to me. I especially love and I'm grateful that I have a spiritual heritage, that I have a family who has loved Jesus for generations. But they're far from perfect. And they make and have made lots of mistakes. And there are things that I've needed to look at and to deal with in order to move forward. But I am really grateful, like Jesus, that I can look around me and I can see my Christian family. Because God is so good to us all the time, isn't he? Yeah. And he places special people around us always at the right time. Um, I'm going off script a little bit, but I remember my first job. I moved to Cheltenham and I didn't know anyone. And I got a flat all by myself. And everybody was really kind in school. But I remember praying and just thinking, Lord, if I could just have a friend who, who just knew you, who knew what it was like, who shared the same stuff. Do you know what I mean? And I remember going to church that night. And um, I didn't really want to go, actually. But, you know, you make yourself go, don't you? I was struggling to settle into church. Service started, and then a young girl came and sat next to me. And at the end of the service, we started talking, and she just moved to Cheltenham. And she was a physio in her first job at the hospital. And she said, where do you live? And I said, oh, I'm living in Pitville. And she said, oh, I'm living in Pitville as well. Do you want to walk back together? So we walked back together. She loved Jesus. She was my next-door neighbor. That is how good God is, and that is how much he cares about us, and that is how much he wants to put people by your side at the right moment. And there are other stories. That's not a one-off for me. I've got amazing spiritual mothers and sisters, um, and they walk with me, and they bless my life daily. So take a moment. Look around you. Thank God for his family, for this family, because he's placed you with spiritual parents, brothers, and sisters. And I think this is why God told our leadership to build community, to build family with Jesus at the center. So don't forget, okay? Listen to his voice this morning, because do you know what? He might be calling you. He might be showing you this morning somebody that you need to reach out to, somebody that you need to be family to, who really needs you. Can you now watch the screen for the final part of our day?
Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? final part of our day final part of our day with Jesus and we see him stopping and resting in the back of a boat while his disciples are panicking and focusing on the storm around them how often is that us how often do we focus on the storms around us but here's Jesus asleep and this is a perfect picture of Sabbath resting here is the prince of the Sabbath, Sabbathing in the back of a boat. And Sabbath is increasingly an alien concept in our world today. But I'm coming to realize it is the essence of the nature of God that underpins all of our spiritual life. I'd go as far as to say that if we can get Sabbath right we have the maximum opportunity to grow spiritually mature. And if we ignore Sabbath, we do so at our peril. I believe this is why God put it as one of the Ten Commandments, alongside things like not stealing and not killing people. In fact, I was looking at this this morning, and there are commandments about having no other God but God, not having idols, not blaspheming and using the, word, the name of God, and then it's the Sabbath command. That's how important it is. So, why do so many of us ignore this command? The Bible doesn't tell us to read our Bibles. It doesn't tell us, in, in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments don't tell us to read our Bibles, but we do that, and we know that's important. It doesn't tell us to pray, but we know that's important. It doesn't tell us to come to church, but we know that's important. But it does tell us to keep the Sabbath. Now, when I say it's one of the commands, I don't really mean it's law. Yes, it is law, but I mean it's gift. It's the sort of command that brings freedom rather than suppression. Sabbath in the Bible is a day that you are to remember and keep holy. It says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. It was a gift to the Jews. They'd been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And for them to have a day off work that could be dedicated to God was a precious gift. Because previously to getting this command, they'd been made to work seven days without any rest, without any time to properly worship their God. And I can hear you say in your minds, but we're in 2019. We don't have slave drivers. We're not captives. We're living in freedom. Really? In 2019, don't we find that we're busier and more preoccupied seven days a week than we've ever been before? 
Our problem, actually, is that we don't have human physical captivity. It's that our slave drivers are hidden and unseen. The fleshy and the spiritual forces of materialism, workaholism, activity, technology addiction, drivenness, productivity, the image, substances, the list goes on. And unless we learn to do Sabbath, then it's harder to hear that still, small voice. The world around you needs to stop rather than to dominate you. So what do we do with Sabbath? Well, a full 24 hours of stopping is a great goal. Let's have that as our goal. And if you can do that, brilliant. And I'm going to walk you through what you might do in that instance. But some of us might need to start with a more achievable goal. Maybe half a day or some mini Sabbaths throughout the week. And like we've said all morning, this is something that I need to work on. I've fallen out of the Sabbath habit. And you know what? I'm not even sure I really did it that well anyway. So I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else. And it helps to see Sabbath as a container. Now, you put a container around something that you want to keep, that you want to protect. And in this case, it's a block of time, which traditionally is a 24-hour block of time. And to make Sabbath meaningful, there are four things that we can put in our container. Four things we can do. We can stop work, we can enjoy rest, we can practice delight, and we can contemplate God. So for the last minute or two, I'm just going to run through those four as quickly as I can. Number one, stop. Sabbath is first and foremost a day when we cease all work. And that's all paid work, but it's also all the other work we do that's unpaid. On the Sabbath, we embrace those limits that Vicky talked about. We let go of the illusion that we are indispensable to the running of the world. We recognise that we'll never ever finish all of our goals and all of our projects and that God is on the throne managing quite well in ruling the universe without our help. Once we've stopped, number two, we rest. We accept God's invitation to rest. God rested after his work of creation. Every seventh day, we are to do the same. We engage in activities that restore and replenish us. That might be napping. I'd like that one. Thanks, Vic. Yeah. Um, for others, it might be hiking or reading. It might be eating good food. It could be enjoying hobbies and playing sports. Resting from unpaid work, however, does require a bit of advanced planning. If I've to have any hope of enjoying some Sabbath, then in the run-up to Sabbath, I need to set aside some time to attend to those routine tasks, the tasks of life that we all have to do, that I won't be able to do on the Sabbath. It might be sorting out bills, it might be cleaning, it might be fixing things, it might be doing things around the house. Then once we've done that, number three, delight. Now, after finishing his work of creation, God pronounced it very good. And it wasn't just an afterthought of, oh, well, I've finished all that and it's great to be done with. 
But it was a joyful recognition and celebration of God's accomplishment. So as part of enjoying and observing Sabbath, God invites us to join in the celebration, to enjoy and delight in his creation and all the gifts that he offers us in it. And there are innumerable gifts in many forms. It could be people, it could be places, it might be the great outdoors, it might be the things that God has blessed us with, like guitars, Paul, for us to enjoy. Now, as part of preparing to practice Sabbath, one of the most important questions that we consider is, what gives me joy and delight? What do you really want to do? And we don't always ask ourselves that question, do we? And it'll be different for every one of us, but part of the Sabbath invitation is to enjoy and delight in the Creator, but also in His creation and the gifts He's given us. And then finally, contemplate, number four. Pondering the love of God is the central focus of our Sabbath. What makes a Sabbath, a biblical Sabbath, is that it's holy to the Lord. So we could do all those other things without actually remembering God. We're not taking time off from God, but on a Sabbath we're drawing closer to him. Sabbath is an invitation to see the invisible in the visible, to recognise the hidden ways God's goodness is at work in our lives and in his creation. It doesn't necessarily mean we spend the whole day in scripture and prayer, although those activities might be part of that Sabbath day. Instead, contemplation means as we go through our day, we're acutely focused on recognising and seeing those aspects of God's love that comes through the so many gifts that he's given us. On Sabbath, we intentionally look for the grandeur of God in everything from the great outdoors to the people that we spend time with, to the food that we eat, to the babies and children that we come into contact with, to the sports and hobbies that he's given us to enjoy. In this sense, contemplation is actually an extension of delight. We're intentional about looking for the evidence of God's love in all the things he's given us to enjoy. So they're the four characteristics, the four key things that help us create a framework as we start to think about what it means to practice a meaningful Sabbath. And if you ever get too caught up in the details of it, just take a step back. Because it's easy to get sucked in to all the intimate details. Just step back and refocus your intention on the larger significance of Sabbath. Because Sabbath is actually the opportunity to experience a foretaste of eternity. And I'm going to hand over to Ian and finish with this quote by a famous rabbi, Abraham Joshua Herschel. He wrote, Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in this world, unless one is initiated into the appreciation of eternal life now, one will never be able to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. The essence of the world to come is Sabbath eternal. And the seventh day in time is an example of our experience in eternity. Thanks, Ian.